Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Amos chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Thus the Lord showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, O Amos, you know, he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them any more. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. This is the fourth of uh, three visions that Amos received there in, uh, towards the end of the book of Amos. And this vision here, Amos sees this, this vision of this basket of summer fruit. And uh, the Lord says, you know, what do you see? And then the, as, he, as he explains what he sees, the Lord gives the interpretation or what the, what the meaning is behind uh, the vision. And he says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. So, so when you think of the, the summer fruit, um, you know, you think, or at least I do, I think about it's the last batch of fruit. You know, if you ever have a vegetable garden or a fruit garden, well, people don't have fruit gardens, I guess, out here, but, you know. Uh, you know, your, your produce, it's a, towards the end of the season, tomatoes, perfect yeah. example, you know. You get your last batch of tomatoes, and you go, oh, that's it, you know, there's not going to be any more. And uh, usually, if you're like us, we like to leave it on the vine as long as possible so it gets nice and ripe and ready. And so, you know, it, it's pulled off, and the picture here, is of ripe produce. And uh, do you remember the ter- parable? We talked about it on Wednesday nights. Um, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And Jesus spoke about this parable about the tares growing up with the wheat. And at first, you know, as they're, as they're young, you can't really tell the difference. And the, and the workers in the field wanted to yank the, the tares out. And, and, and the, the, the owner of the field says, no, no, no. Wait, let them grow up, let them, let them ripen, let them grow up together, and then at the harvest time we'll separate the wheat from the tares. In fact, he says this, um, let both grow together until the harvest. This is Matthew thirteen thirty, by the way. And at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So it's a time that where it's ripe and it's ready to be harvested. And, and here Jesus or God is looking at Amos and, and, and saying, my people, they're ripe. They're ripe for harvest. And well, in this case, they're ripe for judgment. Um, the end has come upon my people. What does he mean? The end uh, of their hypocrisy. You know, they've been going through the motions of being God's people, and yet their hearts were so far from him. And it was the end of God's patience with a stubborn and a rebellious people. And so he's dealing with, this is, this is prophecy is to the northern ten tribes of Israel. And so he's, he's, uh, he's, the end has come for them. Judgment is about to fall because they have repeatedly neglected the word of God. They've repeatedly turned their backs on him. And he says, I will not pass by them anymore. Well, what does that mean? I'm not going to pass by them anymore. Well, it's in the sense of the Passover. And you recall when the children of Israel were in Egypt on that last day, you know, God said, take, a, take the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorposts of your house. And the angel of death is going to pass. If, if he sees the blood covering the doorposts, he's going he's to pass over the house. And the angel of death won't touch that, uh, the firstborn in that house. And so that's what the children of Israel did. They, they took the blood of a lamb, they put it over their doorposts, and anyone who was in that house was spared death. And, a, and of course, that was a picture of what Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would once do for you and I when, when his blood would be shed. And when you and I repent of our sins, we invite Jesus Christ into our heart as our Lord and Savior. That blood then washes us clean. We're covered by the blood. And, and, then, and then the angel of death, the judgment that we're, we deserve, it, it, God passes over us because of what Jesus Christ did. Not because of anything we did, of course. It's what he did on the cross for us. And so this is what he's speaking of in the sense of the Passover. Um, in Micah chapter 7, verse 18... Micah wrote this, Who is a God like you? Of course, Luke was just sharing that. I was like, I'm like, wow, I can't believe he's doing that. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. That's that same word, passing over and passing by. It's the same Hebrew word. 
that, that is being spoken here. Now, this you know we're in chapter eight. We've gone through a few weeks now of going through the book of Amos, and this is the second time that the Lord through Amos tells his people he will not pass by them anymore. It's significant that it's mentioned twice in the book of Amos. Um, there's a uh, a, a way, to, not a way. Uh, there's a method of Bible interpretation, and one of the things there's there's certain rules that you know when you're when you're interpreting the Bible. There's certain rules that you're to, that you should abide by. One of them is called the law of first mention, and what it means is it, it, the first time something is mentioned in scriptures, it's significant, and and it's and it's uh, foundational. And what's fascinating to me is a lot of those firsts, of course, are in the book of Genesis. You know, you have the, the first occurrence of sin, the first occurrence of redemption, the first occurrence of, you know, all these different things. There's the firsts in the book of Genesis. It's so foundational to your and my faith. Now, when I say that, does it make you wonder why Genesis is attacked so much? You know, the Genesis account of, of creation, the, the Genesis account of, of how God formed the family of one man and one female, and that, that makes a couple... Are those foundations are being attacked right now? Is it any wonder? It's because it's the foundation of our faith. The book of Genesis is so important. Well, in the book of Genesis, I'll give you an example of, of uh, the law of first mention. In the book of, of Genesis, uh, Pharaoh, you know, Joseph's been taken into slavery, or he's been sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up in a prison there. And Pharaoh the king of, of Egypt at that time has a dream, and it really bothers him. He sees these seven fat cows and seven skinny cows, and the skinny cows devour the fat cows. That's kind of a bizarre dream. Well, he, 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 I don't know if he wakes up or not, but he ends up having a second dream. And there's seven full ears of corn and seven small ears of corn, and the small ears devour the full ears. I always try to figure out, how does a corn piece of corn devour another one? I don't know, but... In any event, it's a dream, right? And in any event, it just it really unsettles Pharaoh. And so he's trying to get all his magicians to interpret it for him. Nobody can interpret it. And then the butler who was in prison with Joseph, who interpreted one of jo- Joseph, interpreted his what would happen to the butler. He says, oh, man, I forgot all about it. There's a there's a Hebrew slave in prison that was able to tell me my dream or tell interpret my dream. And so Pharaoh says, go get him. And so they bring Joseph. You guys know the story. They bring Joseph before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dreams, and Joseph interprets it. And uh, he basically tells Pharaoh these two dreams are one and the same. They have the same meaning behind it. In Genesis forty-one thirty-two, it says, And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice. And here's why. Because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. That's the first time that something's repeated twice. It's important. And what, what it means is when something is repeated twice in the Bible, pay attention to it because God means business. And that's what God is saying here. I'm not going to pass by them again. This is the second time he said it. He's, he's going to bring it about shortly, their judgment. And he says, And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Now again, this is talking about the ten northern tribes of Israel. And uh, it's not talking about the temple worship down in Jerusalem. It's talking about their false gods, the, 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 the idols that they worshipped uh, in uh, the temples that they had to the golden calf there in Bethel and in Dan. Their worship of their false gods would turn to wailing on the, dead of, uh, on the day of their judgment. It says, many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. And what this speaks about, not only God's judgment, he's sending the Assyrians, because this is what this is leading up to. The Assyrians are going to take the ten northern tribes into captivity. And so God is judging them not only by the sword of the Assyrians, but also the silent death of pestilence, which is the fancy word for disease, and starvation. Because that's how those those uh, conquering armies in those days, that's how they would take over a people. They would, they would build a siege around a city. They'd cut off any supplies going in and coming out. And they would just wait out people. And, and the people inside the city, eventually they'd run out of food. Eventually they'd run out of water. They'd start starving. There'd be disease would be rampant. And the people would, would pretty much, they would, they would be so decimated that it would be nothing for the enemy then to go in and, and just take over, the, conquer the people. 
And this is what would happen, and this is what it's speaking about. But I think it's also speaking to the fact that when these things happen, when God's judgment happens, they're not going to be able to accuse God of injustice. They're going to be silent before Him because it's like they deserved it. They brought it on themselves. So the picture here of the summer fruit, it means that these people, are they're like overripe and rotting food. That It's good for nothing but to be thrown out. Now, I've shared this with you many times. Maybe I shouldn't keep sharing because you're going to think I'm really cheap and I'm not that cheap, but I am Dutch. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of connotations that go with that. But, you know, um, when we buy fruit, you know, and fruit's expensive nowadays. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's expensive. You know, we buy fruit and sometimes we don't get to it fast enough. And it gets to the point where it starts getting moldy or, you know, it's just it's too mushy to eat. And, and, you know, it's like, oh, what a waste to throw away that beautiful fruit. I mean, it, it, I can imagine if I had just ate it like a few days before, it would have been just at its peak flavor, you know, just great. And, and yet it was neglected, and now it's rotten. And there's nothing you can do with it. You've got to throw it out, unless you can make maybe a fruit bread or something. It's like the rotten fruit. <laughs> I'm not a fruit bread or bread, fruitcake person. But I've been accused of being a fruitcake before. But. So anyways... So you think of this, this picture of this ripe, rotting fruit. It's missed its potential. It's, the flavor's been wasted. The expense of it has, is wasted. It's, it's a shame. And that's, that's the picture that God is portraying to Amos of his people. His people who were called by God's name, who were to be led by God, they've wasted their potential. They, they, their, their flavor, now their fruit stinks. You know, they're, they're, it's just like it's a waste. What a shame. Verse 4, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their works. You know, not only were the people disobedient and rebellious in their relationship to God, but it had spilled over now. They had become so materialistic, so greedy, so wicked that they were sinning against each other. And in that day and age, you know, that, that was a time of great prosperity in the, in, that, in the northern kingdom of Israel at that time. Jeroboam II, he had, he had done so much, uh, you know, not spiritually, obviously, but he had done so much uh, economically and militarily that the, the country was in, just in a, in a really good place financially at that time. It was prosperous. And, uh, and yet it was because... The people had cheated each other. They were, they, were, they, were, they were cheating. They were stealing from each other. They were greedy. And the interesting thing is they still observed the external ritual, uh, religious ceremonies. The, the monthly new moon observation is mentioned. And the weekly Sabbath uh, observation is mentioned here. Now, if you're not familiar with the new moon observation, obviously it occurs once a month. But part of that, part of that observance was to have uh, offer to the Lord God a burnt offering, sacrifice of a burnt offering. A burnt offering to the Lord. Of all the sacrifices that the Jews were to offer to the Lord God, this is the one that was completely consumed on the altar. Completely, just completely gone. And it was a picture of being totally, uh, you know, just a complete surrender to the Lord. We sang that one song tonight, uh, to this morning, and the the uh, the verse says, "God, I come before you now. Consume my heart as a burning fire. Please burn away what weighs me down, that your grace would shine brighter." That's what we're speaking about. Just consuming everything, and that's what that offering was a picture of. Everything belongs to the Lord, including my wallet, including my life, my time, my talent, my treasure. It's all belongs to the Lord, and that's was that. You know, you wonder, why did they have to do all these offerings and all these observations? God was trying to teach his people. And that was one of the things, is that everything you have belongs to the Lord God. Well, the weekly Sabbath observation, they were not to buy, they were not to sell, they were not to work on the Sabbath. It was a day to rest from their labors. And really what it spoke to, what it was trying to teach them, is to be content with what you have. You don't have to work seven days of work, laboring and laboring, laboring. God will take care of you. 
if you'll just you know take a take a break from it and do a re- take a rest from your labors. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three, "Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you." This is what that that Sabbath observation was meant to convey to the Jewish people. Well, how ironic that they couldn't wait until these observations, you know, reminding them that everything they had were and belonged to God and reminding them to take time to seek the Lord and to rest and be content, you know, to have enough. When is enough enough? You know, some people, it's never enough. They're always wanting more and more and more. And, and these observances, they couldn't wait till those observances were over so that they could go back to cheating the people. Greed, it's greed. And isn't, that, isn't that fascinating? It says that they made the ephah small and the shekel large. They falsified their scales by deceit. Well, the ephah was a, a standard of measure, and it was a measure that they used for selling grain. And uh, so what it says is they made the, the ephah small. So in other words, what they measured out was less than what the poor people were expecting to buy. It's like, you know, they would, you know, however they did it, but they'd have a smaller measurement than what they should have had. So a person thinks I'm buying an ephah when maybe they're buying nine-tenths of an ephah, you know, or 80% of it. They, but yet they thought that they had a full amount. It's interesting. I, I don't really follow this too much, but uh, Subway restaurants, you know, the Subway sandwiches, they got in trouble because their foot-long sandwiches were not a foot long. <laughs> Seriously, that's a perfect example. And uh, so there was a lawsuit against them, and now they have to... I feel sorry for the people working there, because I've got to make sure the bread doesn't, you know, it rises. It's like it's exactly a foot long, so they don't get sued. Well, you're buying a foot long. Technically, you're, you should be, you're, if you're paying for it, you should you get what you're... You would think you would get what you pay for, right? Well, that's what wasn't happening here. The people were expecting to pay for an ephah, and they were getting less than an ephah. But not only that... It says that they made the shekel large. Well, what does that mean? Well, they measured their money against the, an established weight, and the weight was known as a shekel stone. So they put it on a scale and say, this is a shekel. And then you put your gold coins on the other side, and when it balanced out, that was the amount of money that you were supposed to pay. And so what they did was they put these big heavy weights on that side so that not only did they pay more, get, they, not only did they get less, but they paid more for the less that they got. So they were getting ripped off both ways, coming and going. It's amazing. They were, getting, uh, they were being sold less than what they expected, and they were paying more than what they really should have had. That's how greedy the people were. And on top of that, the product they sold was inferior. It was bad grain. It was, it was the grain that fell through the sieve. It, was, it had all the byproducts. It was, just, it was like junk grain is what they were selling at exorbitant rice prices. To the poor, God was looking at this injustice, and it was just this was sin. Because God, you know, sometimes as Christians we go, well, "I love the Lord God," but you know, but then we treat our brothers and our sisters terrible. And if we love the Lord God, we should treat our people, the people around us, fairly and justly and with with respect. And so they were ripping off the people in more than one way. And you know, the Lord God had told the children of Israel back in Deuteronomy twenty-five, verse thirteen. He says, you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and a just weight, a perfect and a just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. God even cares about integrity in our lives. You know that? That we're just and we're fair. We put in, you know, if you, if you work a job and you get paid eight hours a day, that you work eight hours a day. God expects that out of us to be just and to be fair and to be righteous. Well, they cheated the poor out of their money by deceitful transactions. It says that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So when the poor people who are getting ripped off already, when they got to the point where they could no longer pay their debts off, because of the cheating, they ended up taking all their money. The rich were taking all their money. That they were forced to sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debts. And it wasn't over exorbitant purchases. Like, you know, they bought this big, big color TV. You know, it's like you shouldn't have bought it. You couldn't afford it. No, over a pair of sandals. 
And what it's referring to is it's the most inexpensive shoes. Basically, you know, a piece of wood with a leather strap over, you know, like a flip-flop. Now, I used to call them thongs, but you can't call them thongs anymore. But uh, flip-flops. You know, it's funny because, just a side note, you know, I, I hear the chuckles. Every once in a while it slips out and I talk about having thongs and then people look at me like, huh? And it is funny, but, you know, it's also sad, isn't it? That you can't say certain words without people. There's like a double meaning to everything we say nowadays. Isn't it true? It, it's, it's sad. What does that mean? It means, to me, it means our culture has lost its innocence. It really does. It's like, you know, now you have to tiptoe through a politically correct minefield because anything you say, you know, is going to offend someone. And, and, and you think, well, we're being more sensitive. No, it's not. It's because we've lost our innocence. That's what it boils down to. He says, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Now, when you read that, I, I don't know, when I read that, it just sends shivers up and down my spine. When God says, I'm not going to forget your sin. I'm not going to forget it. The psalmist in Psalm 10, he writes this psalm about why the wicked seem to prosper. He says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. And he goes through all this litany. And then later on, in verse 11 of chapter of Psalm 10, he says, he, he's, he's quoting the wicked person. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. And yet God says here, I'm, I see it, and I haven't forgotten it. And there's, they're going to pay for it. Surely I will never forget any of their works. You know, one of the psalms that we sing, it's, was we, I think Luke put it to, to uh, worship, that it's such a, a, a beautiful song. It's from Psalm 25, verse 7. It's where the psalmist cries out and says, Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. And that should be the cry in all of our hearts. Oh, Lord God, don't, for, don't, don't remember the, the foolish things that I've done. Lord, please forgive me. Please forget those things. What a blessing that you and I have under the new covenant. Under the new covenant. Man, we've had that blessing. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. That's the covenant that you and I enjoy as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. He looks at our past, he looks at our sinfulness, and he forgets it. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Paul writes in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What a blessing that is for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. That he is chosen, not that he, not that God's forgetful, but that he chooses to forget our sin that we've committed against him. And you know what's really sad to me personally is I know some people, people that I've known, you know, the friends that I've known, who for all intents and purposes, as far as I knew, they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they've gone from that now, and, and there's a couple people that I know that have gone from that, and now they're going back to Judaism. It's like they've gone from a relationship with Jesus Christ to now going to trying to be under the old covenant where God says, I'm not going to forget your sins. How sad it is. I, I, I don't understand. You know, the, the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And if you think about it, in, under Judaism, the, altar, the temple's been gone for 2,000 years. It was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., and ever since then, they haven't had an altar to offer a sacrificial lamb on there. So, in essence, 
And, well, of course, we know the reason why is because Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain once and for all. You know, it doesn't, there's no, no more sacrifices needed because of Jesus Christ. But under, the, under Judaism, they haven't had forgiveness of sin for 2,000 years. And they're still, they're still looking to that. And, and so for me, to look at a Christian who has had a relationship with Jesus Christ, as far as I know, and for them to turn away from that and to seek to be under a dead works religion, how sad is that? I can't fathom it. It, it just it blows me away when I, when I think about it. Verse 8. Shall the land not tremble for this? And everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, we all know that it's, you know, when, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the, the ground was cursed, right? The creation was cursed as a part of, of man's sin. But this passage in, that Paul writes in Romans, it still intrigues me when I, when I read it. In Romans 8.19, it says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. I, I, I still have, fathoming that is just, it's, it's amazing when you think about it. But the idea of the land swelling and heaving and subsiding like the river, and he's referring to the river Nile, when, when I read that, and I grew up in California, so when I read that right away, I, I go, oh, earthquake. He's talking about earthquakes. And uh, it could be, you know. It's a fascinating thing when the ground that you stand on, and you expect ground to be firm, right? I'm on solid ground, and all of a sudden it's not solid. It's like, it's like liquid. It's moving like this. It's undulating and all that. Um, it's, it's, it's very unnerving when that happens. And it's possible that Amos could be referring to an earthquake. Now, remember in Amos chapter 1, when we started our study in Amos, it said the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, Thus the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. The mountains, it's, it's withering, and the, and the shepherd, the, the pastures are, are, are mourning over this earthquake. And, he, and notice he says, he mentions the earthquake. It's like everybody knows what he's talking about. So it obviously was a very significant event that occurred. Well... When the land seems, which seems to be stable, and, you know, the land's here and it's usually firm, you expect it to be firm and stable, when it seems to stop obeying the laws of nature and all of a sudden it's not firm, now it's, it's you know, like water, really that's a picture of when man stops obeying God's law of morality. God expects you and I to live a certain way, and once we take God out of the picture, anything goes. You know, a lot of people, you, you start sharing the gospel with people, and uh, I've heard it before, you've heard it before. People talk about, you know, religion is the number one cause for wars and death and all that stuff. Well, that, that's not true. <laughs> it's not true. In fact, godless societies, atheistic societies that were led by people like Joseph Stalin in Russia and Pol Pot in Cambodia, even Adolf Hitler, they killed far more people than any religion ever killed. So when, when mankind disobeys God's laws, man, anything goes. Anything goes. We, we, uh, some of you may have heard of Richard Wormbrand. He was a, he was a uh, Lutheran pastor in World War II. He went in, he got, uh, when the Nazis took over Romania, that's where he was, they imprisoned him. And when the Nazis, you know, they lost Eastern Europe and, and the communists took over, he was put back into prison, and he was tortured under the under the communists. And he said, under that, the torture under the communists was worse than the torture under the Nazis. And he goes into, in fact, some of the stuff in his book he writes. He couldn't even describe some of the things, the utter horrors that he saw. 
is because people are godless. And when, when God is not in the picture, anything goes. And so I think this could be what, what uh, Amos is referring to. Now, I mentioned growing up in California, and, and my wife and my family, we, we lived in California during the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. And I've shared this with you before, but um, one of the things that was fascinating to me on the news, you know, we lived in the San Francisco Bay Area and in the mountain foothills and mountains around it, Santa Cruz Mountains in particular. There's some wealthy people that live up there. And I remember they had a video of some guy's house. He had this big house up in the mountains, and he had an indoor swimming pool in his living room. I mean, that's, you know, that's, you're talking money because California property is already expensive, but this guy's fascinating. They had a video when that earthquake hit. The water in his swimming pool, it came completely out of the pool, and it went into the living room and flooded everything. And then the water, it heaved, it swelled, and then it subsided. But you know when it subsided? It pulled all his furniture into the pool with it. It, just, it, just, it, was, it was amazing to see. I, maybe you can YouTube it. I don't know. It might be out there. I'm not sure. But I remember seeing that on the news, and it was just amazing. You know, that is a picture of this judgment that I think that Amos is talking about. Amos could be referring to the flood of the Assyrians running over the land, flooding the water, flooding everything and carrying everything off in its path. In fact, Isaiah's prophecy in 8.7 refers to the Assyrians as a flood. Listen, it says, Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. So it's just a picture of judgment, you know, just coming over and just taking everything with it. For you and I as, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, praise God that you and I are not swept away in judgment. Lamentations 3.22, Though through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's one of the passages in Scripture I just love. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. What, what is His faithfulness that He's referring to? I believe He's referring to what John would later write in 1 John 1, nine, where it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can you imagine if you one day, you know, someone leads you in a prayer because you, maybe you didn't have a relationship with the Lord and then you pray to receive Jesus Christ. You, you confess your sins and all of a sudden God says, sorry, that, that's, that doesn't apply to you anymore. You know, I, I stopped doing that. It's, so there's a different way now. Can you, can you imagine that? God will never do that. He is faithful to forgive you and I of our sins if we confess them to him. Uh, that's a blessing. That, that is amazing. Verse 10, I will turn your feasts into mourning. And all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son and its end like a bitter day. Now, some people think that Amos is talking about an actual historical eclipse. And evidently, there were two eclipses that occurred during Amos's lifetime one in 784 BC and another in 763 BC. Could be, he could be referring to that. Um, others think that it's picturesque of, do- of the gloom and darkness of God's judgment. And uh, others, still others, think that Amos is speaking about the ultimate day of the Lord. And I, again, I'm, I'm not a scholar, so I don't know. Um, I think it might be both a picture of the gloom and darkness and speaking of the ultimate day of the Lord. Because notice it says, uh, I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son. And it's end like a bitter day. During the Great Tribulation, that's a time of unparalleled uh, wrath poured out on, on man uh, on, on a Christ-rejecting world, basically. And the remnant of Jews alive at that time, they're going to recognize Jesus there as their Messiah. It's in Zechariah 12.10. It says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. There, there's a time coming, that great tribulation, and, and the Jews are going to look up and they're going to see Jesus Christ and they're going to recognize that he's their Messiah and they're going to mourn over him as though, as, as though mourning over an only son. 
Amos continues, verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day, the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. A famine, not of the, notice it's, it's not a famine of the word of the Lord, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, 4, says it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, sometimes we think a famine, of you know, starvation is, is there's nothing worse than starvation or, or, uh, you know, dying of, of, of thirst, that there's nothing worse than that. But if you think about it, those things, they affect you physically and temporarily. But a famine of God's word or hearing God's word is much worse because it affects you spiritually and eternally. There's a big difference there. Psalm 74 is another psalm, and it describes God's people in captivity. And, and so as the psalmist is, is writing this psalm, you, you can just picture that the, the people are in captivity now. All, all this calamity has happened. God's judgment has fallen on them. They're in a foreign land. It says, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there anyone among us who knows how long. We don't know how long we're going to be in the land. We don't know. There's no one who can speak hope to us now. Why? Because they rejected God's word before. They rebuff God's word and his prophets for so long when calamity strikes, then they seek God. But you know what? By then it's too late. There are no prophets to be found, and they know, have no idea how long their captivity will last. They're just silence. You know, there's an example of this found in the story of King Saul. At the very end of his life, he had uh, disobeyed God's word. He had did his own thing. He had disobeyed Samuel, who was God's prophet, anointed prophet at that time. And Samuel dies. And in 1 Samuel 28, verse 4, it says, And the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. It continues, it says, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that, my, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his her, servant said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Please conduct a seance for me, and bring up, the one, and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? She said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stood with his, stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me. And God has departed from me and does not answer me any more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath, fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines." 
It says that Samuel or that Saul, he just he just shook. He couldn't eat. It was it was just devastating. Of course, tomorrow you're going to die. Is basically what the message was. See, if Saul had heeded the word of the Lord through Samuel when Samuel was alive, things would have been much different for him. But he ignored God's word. You know, that's a warning for you and I here today as well. In Mark 4, verse 24, Jesus said this, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And, you, and to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. I think back to this person, this, this friend of mine who's, who's turned to Judaism. And I, and I think, you know, how could he have done this? And, and he, he's heard the word, and yet he's ignored it. He's turned away from it. And I believe God's taken the word away from him. And now I've, it seems like he's turning to atheism now at this point. It's, just, it's, it's amazing. But in any event, you and I, we're to be careful how we hear, how we respond to God's word. And I think that's the lesson for us this morning. So how should we hear God's word? Well, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, he's speaking about the Thessalonians, he says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So how, how should we hear God's word? Well, first of all, you need to believe that God's word is inspired. You know, if you say, well, you know, I believe that part of the Bible is inspired, but I don't believe that part. Well, how do you determine what's inspired or what's not inspired? Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God's Word is inspired. We need to accept that. And we also need to heed God's Word, he says, as a light that shines in a dark place. Now that's interesting, because that's a nautical term. And what it's talking about is a ship. You know, there's a ship out in the ocean, and, and, and it's dark at night, so there's no, there's no land, there's no horizon. There's no, you know, you can't see the, the shores or anything. You're just out there, and you don't know which way to go. And then all of a sudden, you see a lighthouse. You see a light shining. And you go, you know what, I'm going to navigate by that light. Because if I, if, I, if I head to that light, I know that there's a harbor there. Or, or I know this, stay away from the light. The other thing is if it keeps you away from... from uh, you know, rocks and reefs and stuff like that. But that light is to keep the ship going in the right direction in a place where it has no other way to tell where, where it's going. We're living in a day-to-day where the world has no idea where it's going. The world has no answers for you and I. And, and, and there's so much confusion. There's so much uncertainty. And you and I, the only certainty that we have is God's Word. And so for you and I, we're to heed God's word. If you will just heed God's word and live your life by God's word, he'll take you to that destination, to a home with him. It's in order to keep the ship heading towards this destination. That's what that light is. And so that's how you and I are to heed God's word. Paul wrote this in Romans six seventeen, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Obeying from the heart. You know, the heart is the seat and the center of human life. I mean, that's where our emotions are, our, our feelings, our desires, our passions, everything. It comes from our heart, from within. And what, what uh, Paul is writing the Romans is to obey from the heart, to willingly obey God's word internally. Not externally, you're not being coerced to do it, but you, inter- you, just, you just love God's word. You want it. You're just living by it. It's, it's part of you. So how do we do that? 
Well, Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord, of the Lord and Savior. Being mindful of God's words. That, mean, that means you recollect it. You remember it. You, you bring it back. You think about it. Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord. Listen to this. Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. The Thessalonians, they accepted God's word. They they received it with joy, even though they were being afflicted, even though there was persecution with it. They accepted God's word with joy, and it became it, they internalized it to the point where now... They're talking about it because, you know, whatever, whatever you really focus on, whatever you really worship, you're going to talk about it. It's going to come out. If you're really into something, it'll, you'll start talking about whatever that something is. And if you're really into God's word, it's going to come out. And, and, and it's beautiful to give out what the Lord's shown you because you can't give if you don't receive. You know, you can't give out unless you unless you take it in yourself. It says, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded or echoed forth. So how do I get to that place in my life where all these things are true? There's, it's four things. We're going to sum it up here pretty quick. For, first of all, you have to read God's Word. You're not going to just put a Bible, by, you know, maybe if I use it on my pillow, I'll absorb it. You know, and it's, no, you've you got to read it. Open up your Bible. Take, blow the dust off you know, and, and start reading it. Second, pray through it. Uh, one, of the, one of the greatest things, I think, and the most helpful things to do when you're reading God's Word is to pray through it. And what I mean by that is you start reading God's Word, and as God's Word speaks to your heart, because it will, you stop right there. You don't have to read like 10 minutes or 10 chapters. Just read, and as God's Word speaks to you, then you pray, and you respond to God's Word. As, as the Spirit is speaking to you, you respond to it. The Lord shows you something. Lord, help me with this area of my life, because I'm not matching up to this. Or, Lord, give me that faith to trust you in this area like I just read. So pray through it. Third, meditate on it. Just dwell on the word. And then fourth, apply it. Live by it. It's pretty simple, but we need to be reminded of those things. Well, verse 14, we'll get to the end here. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall, never, uh, they shall fall and never rise again. The sins of Samaria was Baal worship. Now, Dan was in the far north end of Israel, and Beersheba was in the south. And basically, what it means is from the north to the south, they were worshiping idols in the ten northern tribes of Israel. What is an idol? Well, the idols were substitutes for the living God of Israel. Remember when they were set up? All Israel, before they separated into two kingdoms, they went down to Jerusalem to visit to worship the Lord God at the temple. And Jeroboam became king of the northern tribes, and he didn't want them going down to the southern kingdom because then their hearts might be drawn to the southern kingdom. So he said, hey, we'll make it simple. We'll just give you a substitute God. You don't have to travel down there. You can worship God right here. And he set up these calves for the people to worship, and it was idolatry. But that's what idolatry is, is when you substitute something for the Lord God in your life. That's an idol. It could be a relationship. It could be a possession. It could, there's so many things that can be idols in 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 uh, in in substitute for God Himself. Well, if you want to subs- if excuse me, if you want to avoid idolatry in your life, if you want to avoid substituting anything for relationship with the Lord God, how do you do that? Read His Word. Like I said, read it, pray it, meditate on it, apply it in your life, allow it to become part of your life. And uh, I want to close with this passage of Scripture, First Peter two two. Peter says this, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. So this morning, we're going to close right here, but this morning, I just want to encourage you to fall in love with God's word. And, you know, sometimes, um, if you're like me, I kind of have ups and downs with reading God's word. Sometimes I'm really good, other times I'm not. 
one of the things that's really not helpful is when you try to do it like it like it's a it's a mandatory thing like I got to do this or you know God's not going to be happy with me or all this. The way to fall in love with God's word is just to read it, just to get you know like today is a beautiful day. Let me encourage you to do something. You go, you know, I'm going to go for a hike or I want to go out and enjoy the weather. Go out and enjoy the weather, but take your Bible with you or your iPhone or your iPad. You know, we've got all these different ways to read the Bible now. Take it with you. Go find a beautiful spot. Sit down and read God's Word. Just, just read it and allow God's Word to speak to you. And I would encourage you to do that, uh, to allow God's Word to come in you. You know, there's a phrase that has been in some people's Bibles, and it's not a verse in the Bible, but people have written it in their Bible. It says that, you know, the Word of God, it, it, this will... Oh, I'm going to mess it up again. <laughs> This will keep you from sinning, and sin will keep you from this. You know, God's word. You want to, you want to start walking with the Lord in righteousness and being, you know, following Him and obeying Him. We'll learn how He wants you to live, and so that's the encouragement for you today. So why don't we stand up and let's go, to the Lord, in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of your word, and Lord, as we just. Uh, I know I personally, Lord, just rejoice in the fact that that I am not under the old covenant. Father, that uh, you have chosen to forgive me and to forget my past and my sins. Lord, uh, that when we come to you by faith, Lord, that, Lord, we're a new creation when we come to you. That, Lord, you forgive us and, Lord, you restore us. And, Lord, this morning I pray for each and every person here this morning. Those that have a relationship with you this morning, Lord, I pray that, Father, that they might just be reminded this morning to just to fall in love with your word, just to start reading it and to start allowing it to uh, infuse their, their lives and every aspect of their lives. And, Father, if there's anyone here that does not have a relationship with you this morning, Father, I pray that they might realize that you love them, that you died on the cross for them. Lord God, that you are offering them a way to be forgiven from all the things that they've done in the past. If they'll just turn their hearts to you, repent of their sins, and invite you into their heart to be their Lord and Savior. So Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here that hasn't made that, that step, Lord God, that even now that they might pray, believing that you died on the cross for their sins, and that you rose again from the dead, and that, Lord, they might uh, invite you into their hearts to be their Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your reminders here. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.